Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Oh, right. This is Buddy Franklin. This is the greatest showman. Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Oh, who else? McDonald. time of day everyone this is americans watching the footy i'm ethan castle i'm benjamin castle we're in america a country where a team called the eagles is good i guess it's pretty cool that they have two australians among their ranks um jordan mylotta has played very well in the playoffs for them but unfortunately punter aaron sipos who played at st kilda is currently injured hopefully he'll make it back in time for the super bowl man jordan mylotta looks a lot older than 25 that as for the Australian Eagles, though, we'll be talking about them in this episode because they're one of the teams we didn't cover in our last one. We're picking up where we left off with the Season 2 premiere, going through each team's wish lists. Also, just want to briefly mention, I am now officially a West Coast Eagles member. So, yeah, there's that. I don't think your first year of membership is going to go quite as well as mine did. Impossible. Quite literally impossible. Do I see... Bottom three again? Well, actually, you know what? I'll leave that talk for when it comes up on the randomizer. Look, I'm not in the business of quantifying how many games teams are going to win, but I will say, I think you're in to win at least a couple more games. I think four or five wins is a reasonable expectation just because the injuries can't be as bad as they were last year. I'm going to start knocking on wood now, and I will not stop until the season is over. Now, I do have one news, everyone, item before we get into all the other teams, because we talked about St. Kilda last time, but more news from them has come out since. So Jeff Walsh, their new manager of football, who came on a few months ago, he's no longer their manager of football, stepped down for family reasons. No other details there, of course, wish him all the best. I just hope they don't bring in somebody else connected to Ross Lyon to replace him because at this point pretty much everything else they have on board is someone with a connection to Lyon in some way shape or form. Steven Silvani who's now the list manager was an assistant under Lyon his first time around. I said last time if they were trying to repeat the same steps that they did in line 1.0 it's going to fail. They don't have that same talent. They aren't starting from as good a point I think as well. Oh not even close. I don't think this is going to be as pretty. We'll see if Lion can handle going through the rebuild stages because sometimes coaches that are used to success, when they get put in a difficult spot, it doesn't go so well. And that also explains some of my worry around Alistair Clarkson starting anew at North. But you can go back to our previous episode to listen to what we think about those two teams along with seven others. So the first team we'll be talking about this time is... A team that had top four expectations for a lot of the year and 
probably would have gotten there had they not suffered repeated punches to the groin. At least they made finals. Oh, Richmond? Richmond, exactly. How many fourth quarter leads did they blow? I think it was seven. It was a lot. They're still in this sort of interesting stage where they're bridging the gap between the old generation and the new. I really liked how they went about that last year, the way they were able to make that transition so seamlessly. There weren't too many times after the early stages of the season where they looked completely disjointed. There didn't seem to be any sort of power struggle, which can be an issue sometimes. You know, the old guard not wanting to relinquish their control. Well, they did have new co-captains last year, those being Toby Nankervis and Dylan Grimes, and that situation went over pretty smoothly. I didn't expect Nankervis to be as strong of a leader on and off the oval as he was, and Grimes, I expected, would be more even. The injury he suffered near the end of last year was unfortunate. It definitely hampered Richmond's chances of succeeding come finals time, and wouldn't you know it, they faltered late against Brisbane and bowed out of the elimination final. I still don't understand how that happened. They had five defenders there around Joe Danaher, and somehow Joe still got the kick away. The fact that he got the ball in the first place was damning enough. And it was weird because it was very un-Damian Hardwick of them, where usually they don't beat themselves, they don't make stupid mistakes like that. Are you talking about that game, or the whole year because... The whole year. Yeah, I mean, Jake Arts deciding to play on and blowing that game against North, Noah Cumberland playing on and getting the draw against Frio instead of potentially a win. Before that, you had the now-retired Shane Edwards taking too long on a set shot and then getting that smothered. You had Jason Castanga's entire season. He's definitely got talent. I just can't make sense of how many times he makes these easy mistakes, especially kicking for goal. And you wonder why he's been in and out of the side a number of times these past few years. Edwards was one of a trio of outgoing players from this past season, alongside Josh Caddy and Kane Lambert, who has now joined their coaching staff. Also stepping away from Richmond, Peggy O'Neill, the most successful American in AFL history, considering her tenure as club president, turning things around, being confident in Damian Hardwick to get the job done, backing him in when the team progressed for a couple years under him, and... And that trust certainly bore fruit for everyone involved in Yellow and Black with their three premierships in four years. And that window is not dead yet with how they've transitioned. The nice thing I've also seen from the younger side of their list is how many of their guys are versatile and can play in multiple spots. You saw Josh Gibkiss play in different lines throughout the year. Hugo Ralph-Smith, who I know you're probably going to talk about later because he seems to be your favorite on their list. Liam Baker is probably the most important of that crop, though, and I know he signed on for a couple more. Baker could be thrown pretty much everywhere and do well. He could be that kind of corner mover, kind of with a Jack Crisp or Brad Close level of importance. Yeah, I don't know if he's going to be there just yet. He's gonna He's got some more refining to do in his game. He can certainly get there within the next couple years, though. The athletic ability is totally there. Now, as they've kind of made this transition from old to young... They made a big trade with GWS, bringing in Jacob Hopper and Tim Taranto. Taranto was always a guy with the Giants who had really good possession numbers. You know, he's going to transform into a completely different team where he's not the only major ball getter. So it'll be fun to watch how they how they kind of utilize him. I think it'll be a really interesting role to see. Hopper only managed seven games last year after an injury 
Hopper only managed seven games last year, played in round one, and then got hurt. Has always been a decent ball getter, never a huge target for goal, so just kind of add him into that mix of movers around half back in the middle, and they have no shortage of that whatsoever. I alluded to what I want to see out of Richmond for this year, my wish list item for them already, just their ability to close things out. They had this tendency to play three good or at least on par quarters. It would average out to put them in a position to win. Maybe there was a bad second quarter or third quarter, but they would put themselves in position to win a game with a moderately decent fourth quarter, and then they would be nowhere near moderately decent. They would just be outright bad. You know, it almost gives me Pittsburgh Steelers vibes with how they have the ability to both play up and down to their competition any given day. And I'm not just thinking that because of the colors, though, and that does help. I hope you're not thinking that their fans are similar. No, I would like to think that Tigers are not Yenzers in any sense. I mean, look, putting french fries on sandwiches is great, but the whole uh, inbreeding thing, I do not endorse that. As for what I'd like to see, just kind of online with that, more of the same, just with fewer dick punches. You know, if you're going to lose, like the game they lost to the Crows, they lost by like 19 around round five. You know, that was a disappointing game. It's like you got beat. It's a lot easier to stomach that than pretty much any loss they had in the second half of the season. So I'd much rather see, you know, when you lose, just lose and just keep bridging the gap between old and young and figure out how Taranto and Hopper fit into this identity and what things are going to look like in the coming years. Because I think as they're doing all of this, they're kind of doing it with a plan of, hey, this is what we want our team to look like in two years. And I think we're going to get to see that vision take shape more so long as they don't have any sort of drastic overreactions. And they don't seem like a club that will do that. Pretty much every outcome within the top 10, I would say, is on the table for them this year. It's a question of how quickly can they reel things in? How quickly can they find the new spots for those ins from GWS. One thing they won't have to worry about also, worth mentioning, is that one of the most exciting players in the game and someone who may win Mark Anvil of the year in the same year at some point, Shea Bolton is signed on now through 2028. He's another one of those players that does need to reel things in a bit. When he's at his peak, he is nigh unstoppable. But he has a lower floor for someone with as high a ceiling as he has. No complaints about him, like, showing the ball to someone, though. I remember that was a big deal last year. I think it was in the Carlton rematch. I liked it. I like guys showing personality. I like Shea Bolton for that reason. I like Jack Ginneman for that reason. You know, it's one thing if you're doing it, like, while your team's getting their ass kicked. I might have made the analogy before. So, one of the things I really hated about David Ortiz was, like, he would pimp a homer. There was a specific game in 2015 I'm thinking of, and I'm going to... I'm going to find the exact game. It was the last game of a four-game series the Red Sox were playing against the Angels. They were getting swept. They were getting shitted on. And he hits like a solo homer to cut the lead to, I think, 6-2. to two. Yeah, it was game two of a doubleheader. Yeah, they were down 6 nothing, and this was a two-run homer to cut it to 6-2. And he stood there and pimped it like he just did something. He's like, no, you're getting your ass kicked. You should be packing your shit and going home. On the other hand, if you, you know, Go nuts to pimp a homer to punctuate a big moment? Fuck yeah. Like, if Jordan Alvarez, when he hit his huge homer in Game 6 of the World Series, you know, took off a different article of clothing at each base to the point where he was naked by the time he got to home plate, 
you deserve that. You hit like a monster home run that just won your team the World Series. Just don't do it when you're getting your ass kicked. There is Jordan Alvarez on one side, and on the other, there's Chris Pohl hits a huge three to cut the lead to 42. I think Shea Bolton fell much closer to the Jordan Alvarez side, and good for that. One team down in this episode, 10 overall, 8 to go. Now, if you want to talk about a dick punch to Richmond, one of the games that really stands out to me is when an emerging star who was a Richmond fan growing up sunk then after the siren. Gold Coast Suns time here. They're another team for whom I think 2023 is a real inflection point year, as it is for Port Adelaide. Stuart Dew has two more years on his contract now. He was extended during last season, a decision that someone surprised me. But if they don't make the move to finals this year, I'm not going to expect it for 2024. I would like to think this could be one of those extensions that's given where it's more so that Dew can coach this season without looking over his shoulder. But if they disappoint this year, I would be all for moving on. You know, you compared them to Port Adelaide a moment ago. I think Port Adelaide has the higher ceiling in the two for sure. Does Gold Coast, though, have the lower floor? I don't know because we saw what Port Adelaide's floor was last year. I, I think the two have a similar floor. It's just Port also has the weight of expectations on them. There's a certain amount of expectation on Gold Coast now that there's the extension and what they did to stay competitive throughout the later stages of last season and what they showed on the younger side of their list. Guys like Malcolm Rosas and Joel Jeffrey emerging. One of my favorite games that I watched of theirs throughout last year was the game up in Darwin where both of them put on a show for their friends and family back home. Unfortunate that Jeffrey played as little as he did because he had some real highlight real moments in the short time he had. And... That wasn't a particularly close game. It was just compelling from like that individual standpoint. So that was that was part of what made them fun. It was like the 2022 Suns were fun because any game they won, no matter how they won it, there was something compelling, even if it was a blowout. Unfortunately, one of my favorite pieces of this team will not be involved for the first two rounds. That being the incredibly tall and skinny Mac Andrew, because... He had a nice little uh, DUI incident, so he's going to miss his first two games. Andrew's part of what I hope to be a solution for their back third for the next few years. Questions abound about what they have back there. Caleb Graham showed a bit late last season, but I don't think he has that sort of key defender ability. They don't have Rory Thompson anymore. His body finally gave way enough for him to say, that's it, I've had enough. He's retired. I think the solution for them is just they've got to have one of the highest scoring averages in the league for them to succeed. And they certainly have that ability with all the players that they have going forward. I've mentioned Rosas and Jeffrey on the younger side. They're going to have Ben King back after missing last season with an ACL injury. Of course, you've got the tall mix of Levi Casbold and Mopyar Chol in there as well. Casbold may end up being a guy that's kind of pushed to a marginal spot or maybe even that sub spot because you've got King in the mix as well. I would hope, though, that King does more half-forward work, and this is one of my wish list items for the Suns, is that Ben King's running ability is what impressed me so much back in the first couple years that I saw him, and I want him to be able to put more of that on display, and doing that would still allow for Chul, Casbol, 
maybe Jared Woods at times, to be there in the square doing the key work. You know, you said they have to win high-scoring games. I think they can win games in the 70s and 80s. I don't see them winning too many games in the 50s or 60s unless it's, you know, just unbelievably poor conditions. Wait, they're not playing in Cairns. They did have a game where it rained and Fremantle just, you know, kind of prolapsed, but... I mean, if Fremantle in the rain, though. If we're looking at normal games, yeah, they're not going to be able to hold too many teams into the 50s and 60s, which actually ties right into my point about them. What I want to see out of them this year is more of a defensive hierarchy. What I liked out of their defense last year was that Caleb Graham really settled into this role as, like, the big dude that everyone kind of slides around. Not necessarily the key guy, as I said, but at least a steadier piece back there, especially once Thompson was hurt again. He was kind of a glue guy. He was... Everyone else's role was kind of in relation to his, I think would be the best way to describe it. Because I don't think glue guy is the exact term. Like in basketball, the glue guy is the guy who takes charges. And it's not like he was a guy who was racking up the one percenters. But I really thought everyone else's role predicated on where he was. And when he settled in, I think other guys started to have a sense of what they needed to do. And they're going to need other guys to find that role. You look at Jalad last year, you saw a team where everyone by the end of the year knew their role on defense. Stewart had his spot, DeConing had his spot, Tom Atkins had his role as the chase down tackle gritty guy. Everyone had their role, and I just don't see that structure in the Suns defense where everyone has like a set role. Now, there is a downside where like if it gets to the point where Melbourne, where it's so rigid that, like, you lose Stephen May and everyone's kind of lost. But when the other guys have their role instead of just what they do in relation to that one guy, it works, as evidenced by how Jalon played without Tom Stewart. When you look at the ins and outs for Gold Coast, the defensive third remains highlighted, along with Thompson retiring. Oh, like, Markov was delisted. As of now, he's been training with Collingwood, so maybe he can be picked up still in the supplemental period, get a list spot there. They did bring in Ben Long, who can be another one of those guys that could fit into that sub role just with the burst of energy that he provided multiple times in that spot for St. Kilda. You know, I don't think Long is a great player, but to have a decent veteran presence like him is one of the things that a largely young Suns team could really use. I mean, between Long and Casbolt, Long being that guy on the defensive end, I can see that. It's funny because Long is another one who's only 25, but... He looks like he's been doing this forever, and he's got, you know, 79 games of experience, which I think will help. What I find interesting looking to the midfield and forward spots for the Suns is that I've been saying all these positive things about them, and yet I haven't mentioned Isaac Rankin is now an Adelaide Crow. I don't think people realize the riches that they had at some of these forward spots until around the midpoint of last season when Rosas emerged because he solved some of their small issues. But Riken was on the way out, and of course they traded Jack Bowes along with pick seven to get some salary cap management done. So that's a problem in and of itself. They did have pick six, which got them mid-forward Bailey Humphrey, and they picked up Jake Steen of the rookie draft as well. Please get a haircut, along with getting Jed Anderson in the supplemental period from North. The way Anderson fits in is pretty compelling because... He was a huge possession guy with North. 
you know, he wouldn't like strike me as, oh yeah, that guy's a superstar, but you'd look up and every week you'd have like 25, 30 disposals, if not more. And now that you have, you know, a big ground gainer alongside him and Toot Miller, Noah Anderson right there as well, the one that I mentioned at the top of this Suns discussion, and Matt Rowell definitely be able to pitch it as well. Yeah, though he's noble too, he's just typically is being used as a tackler, but look, if he's able to facilitate Miller and Anderson getting the ball in that tackling role, keep using him that way because you've seen what that's done for the Suns already. The question is, will Anderson play off of the other two or will we find out that he was just a product of having absolutely nobody else that could do anything alongside of it? North. I think it's a fair question to ask. I think we'll learn a lot more. Like, if you were to see a game where maybe they don't have Miller or they don't have Rowell and you see how the others slide around in their absence. Oh yeah, just realized. Two Andersons on their list. I know the commentators will make no distinction between them whatsoever during their broadcasts. They'll just say Anderson and hope we understand. Look, sometimes you just call him Ariaga, even if it's Ariaga too. Raul and Anderson, by the way, both signed contract extensions this offseason, so they'll be around for a couple more years. Who the hell knows where the team's going to be by the time those deals end. So the Suns clearly have riches in the forward two-thirds, at least moderately so, might it need to be a situation where some of the more mobile pieces there might be moving back to help facilitate that momentum going forward, kind of a slingshot role? A lot of unanswered questions at this point because they're a younger list and a team that probably hasn't gotten the attention they've been due up until really the last third of the home and away last year. Hey, Ethan, you want to keep going with this, like, guessing game of who's next? You seem to be okay at it. Nah, just, just go on. All right. Yeah. Seven teams left. And next up is Essendon. Where do we start with Essendon? Well, they might not have the worst coach firing saga in a country that used to be part of the British Empire over the last seven months. Say hello to the Vancouver Canucks and one Bruce Boudreaux and one Rick Tockett. So for those of you that don't follow the NHL, the Canucks basically made it clear that they were firing their coach for a while midseason and then waited because his replacement had been doing a TV job that he needed to give like four weeks notice on. So basically he was a lame duck coach for four weeks. It's just just a complete dip move. And there should be a urinating tree video roasting them at some point. You know, he mentioned him in the uh, like the haters guide at the all-star break for the Western Conference. I'm hoping he does more on it. He, it, it sounds like he will. The Vancouver Canucks, a legacy of failure. It's it's something. But yeah, I mean, Essendon's offseason, well, actually, it, it started during the whole and away season around round 21-22 when things really started to emerge that, hey, we're looking at Alistair Clarkson. Oh, yeah, Ben Rudd's still under contract. Well, fuck him. He's gone. Wait, he's not? No, not yet. Now he is. But hey, now we have Brad Scott coming back in to coach. And we've got our new CEO, and, and never mind, not Andrew Thorburn, uh, Craig Fazzo, who used to be head of football with the Eagles. Definitely a loss for West Coast's personnel. He was someone who was considered a potential successor to be CEO when Trevor Nisbet ultimately goes. He hasn't yet. So what is there actually to talk about on the field for Essendon when most of their drama was off of it? 
Well, I don't think they did a ton to upgrade their defense, which is not ideal, but they did bring in some good players. And perhaps the most important one is the unretirement of everyone's favorite. Man, it's good to have him back. Honestly, of course, he's not a defender, really, but the pressure that he can put on throughout the ground is something that Essendon definitely missed all last year. Kind of the open play tackles he's able to put on. And just anywhere he goes, he drew attention whether or not Essendon had the ball. They missed that a lot last year, especially in the middle third. Essendon brought in Sam Wiedemann as well in a trade with Melbourne. I think the logic there might be that Wiedemann could help take some of the heat off Peter Wright, where he was such a clear target last year and still managed a career season despite that. Also, maybe this way, Wiedemann can actually have like some stable playing time, see what he can do if he's in there for more than two or three rounds in a row. At least they have another tall piece there that could maybe divert the attention sometimes, and hopefully Harry Jones becomes that sort of player as well. Jones is someone who I've thought could really have a big 2023 for a while now, and I'm hoping he has a clean bill of health and is really able to do that because he's already a good finisher. Aside from that one he missed and ended up leading to Collingwood winning at the Siren. But that was more of a defensive failure after that behind in the first place. They also drafted Elijah Sadis. I think that's close. Fifth overall, he's got a minor meniscus tear, so we don't know how long he's going to be out for. Hopefully he's back so that we can learn how to pronounce his name. He's a midfielder with some wing ability that they refer to as a ball magnet. So basically, he's your mom. Maybe Sadas and Walla and a couple others could help people forget that Devin Smith retired. I mean, Smith was on and off the field with his own health issues and finally bowed out near the end of last season. They also traded away Aaron Francis to Sydney, and I don't know how to feel about that because he's another tall who could be useful in the back as kind of a supplemental defender and interceptor there, and I wouldn't be shocked if he plays that role with Sydney. This year, especially if one of the McCartans or Dane Rampey goes down. And also shout out to Essendon's other retired player from last year, Michael Hurley, for the way he was able to go out on his terms and get a goal in his finale against Richmond. The mutual respect from pretty much everyone on the ground in that game was pretty awesome. And the fact that it happened for someone who, you know, wasn't one of the current star players, wasn't a premiership player even, makes it even more awesome. Football respected beautiful moments number 16. In terms of what I'd like to see from them this year, unfortunately, it's something that they really didn't address in the offseason, unless the coaching change is what's going to address that, and that's any sort of defensive competence whatsoever. All last year, we were talking about how their defenders could certainly move the ball. Nick Hine can certainly move it. Mason Redmond was a regular leader in meters gained was close to a kilometer gained multiple times if he didn't top it at least once, but they often just couldn't hang in those one-on-one -on -one contests or those packs in the defensive 50 that they needed to take in order to stem the bleeding. Their good defenders were really just guys that were good at moving the ball out of the back half. I mean, in the last part of the year, Brandon Zirk Thatcher definitely got into better form and maybe could be Part of a solution back there, he's still on the younger side. He's only 24, and it's really fullback that I'm highlighting for them because I think with Andrew Graff, they've helped find themselves a solution at halfback. I think 
once McGrath was moved from the midfield line to halfback, it definitely helped solve some of their problems back there. See if I can find it. How much of a reset of Essendon's expectations is this year? I gotta say it's a pretty complete one at this point with all the turmoil they've had at least off the field and how much of an anomaly 2021 now seems to be. Really, we'll have to see how quickly Brad Scott gets them playing their way and also getting results. Are they two years off, three years off, and will the board even give Brad Scott the time he needs to implement change? I'm leaving it on a cliffhanger because with Essendon in particular, you never really know. All right, who's next? All right. Are they your flag favorites for this year? Brisbane? You've been talking about the Lions for the past few months now, especially since they made the acquisition of Josh Dunkley during the trade period that they're shaping up for this year to be their best run at things, their best chance at finally getting over the hump and actually getting to the flag that they've sought now for 20 years. They got over the MCG curse last year and also dramatically reversing their fortunes against Melbourne from the home and away season. So they have the ability to adjust, of course. And I think Chris Fagan is a good in-game coach. With the additions they have, I've got to think they've stacked themselves up well enough to be right there in the top two and in the prelim. Yeah, I think the reason I can believe in them is we know they have the talent. They've gotten over the sort of, you know, I need to see it to believe it things. The only thing they haven't really done is win at Cardinia, which I really hope they don't do that. I believe that's the first game the Cats will actually play at Cardinia this year. And that's not something that the Lions will have to worry about in finals. So I really like their chances this year. I think the one question, and this isn't even like the thing on my wish list. It's just, can Dean Zorko be a premiership captain? I think that's a fair doubt to have. And a question that you can still ask. But I mean, this is a pretty complete team in just about every spot. And there's only one big departure of note, that being Dan McStay going to Collingwood in free agency. Meanwhile, you look who they brought in. Although we may not be seeing much of Marcus Adams, considering he's still recovering from a concussion he suffered in round 21. So yeah, he's been moved to the inactive list. Looked like he's not really going to be playing at all this year. So game on Harris Andrews, game on Jack Payne, potentially he took Adams' spot in the back line during finals last year. I'm not going to lie. I got Adams and Andrews confused more than a few times, and I would have to, like, check the roster, like, wait, which one's this number? So, I mean, this uh, this helps with that for less than ideal reasons. Adams helped take the heat off Andrews for sure, because there were games last year where Andrews was just out of sorts. He took the most one-on-ones last year in the league. He led the league in spoils, but he's now going to be thrust into an even more important position without Adams being able to supplement his role. So what I need to see out of one individual this year, just about really more than for any other team, is for Harris Andrews to return to something close to, if not actual, all-Australian form. If he can do that, I think the Lions will be really well-suited to make the run that we kind of expect them to now. You look at who else they managed to bring in to help support them on the rest of the oval. You got Jack Dunstan coming in, still a very reliable set shot. I could see him taking a lot of the 35 to 50 meter out marks that Eric Hipwood and Joe Danaher got for a lot of the season. Well, especially Danaher because his goal kicking form was 
in question. His range has just been in question in general the past few years. His marking ability hasn't, though, so we'll see how Danaher and Gunston interact in particular. Having Danaher and Hipwood together for hopefully the whole season, though, will be a huge plus because you saw what Hipwood did for the whole team once he got back. Yeah, they can really overwhelm teams with tall forwards and not just when five defenders are dicking around and letting one of them go. And when Danaher was out, he was out in that semifinal win against Melbourne because his first kit was being born. Congrats on the sex. Hipwood ended up playing his best game of the whole year. And they have the pieces not just in the tall forward department, but pretty much everywhere else. Zach Bailey has signed on through 2026. He's probably my favorite from their list. And when he's playing at his best, he usually the Lions are as well. A very versatile kick and a pretty good sprinter as well. You've also got Cam Rayner apparently trialing at halfback now because that's how loaded the midfield is between Lockie Neal, Dunkley, etc. And we haven't even talked about their two father-son picks they brought in. Yeah, Will Ashcroft was the second overall pick. And at pick 12, my personal favorite, Jasper Fletcher. Not Jasper, Jasper. We have Jasper and a Geelong, we have Oscar. Okay, but there's also Shadow Brain, a Category B rookie from the Lions Academy. We are spoiled for names on this team, too. Also, another good story in Connor McKenna coming back to the AFL was treated pretty unfairly by the media after catching COVID in 2020. Ended up going back to Northern Ireland, helped County Tyrone to the All-Ireland Senior Football Championship, and now another addition to an already loaded Lions list. Talking about all these different individuals makes me hope that Chris Fagan and company put on the type of list pressure that I also want to see at clubs like Geelong and Collingwood. If someone's underperforming, give someone else a shot. Don't let your equivalent of late career Sean Higgins hang around. If a guy like Reese Matheson is dominating in the VFL, give him the opportunity. Look what Matheson did when he got in there. The barometer. Gary Rowan's more of a barometer than Matheson. I've gone over that before, but certainly someone who energizes the rest of the team. This is time to take a break. We'll catch you on the other side with our final five teams. Every bit of this discussion gets me more excited to have actual games to watch soon. I hope you guys are feeling the same way. We'll be right back. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. I'm on Twitter at Castle Media. I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. Grian Harabe, the footy cat, is on Instagram at catnamedgrian. You can also now find us on YouTube at Americans Footy as well. We're going to upload this audio there as well as some shorts and other things throughout the year. All right, five teams to go. Before you shuffle, just randomly, because I'm not keeping track, how many 2022 finalists are in that last five? Two. We've got two finalists, one that was close, and two of the bottom three. All right. Let's, uh, let's do the uh, shuffle thing. And we'll be talking about one of those finalists first, because it's Frio. All right. A team that we were both high on going into last year, you in particular, and we were proven right. You look at their roster, and my thing entering last year was just looking at them, it's like, man, they've got some fucking dudes. And I already knew that Justin Longyear was a good in-game coach, and everything just kind of clicked for them all of last year, except when they were in the rain. Yeah, 
that was going to be my one thing I wanted to see this year, but you kind of took it, so... Yeah, I mean, they were at their worst round nine at Gold Coast and round 10 at home against Collingwood. It seemed to be the only thing that consistently messed them up was just whenever adverse conditions hit them. It seemed like it disrupted their general movement, and it just forced them to play, I think, slower more than anything. And when they were so quick to transition from their full-court press into fast breaks, to use basketball terminology, I could understand why the rain was so adverse to their game plans. Now, I don't love some of the changes made to their list this offseason, though with the amount of young talent they've got coming through, hopefully a healthy Jai Amos, seeing more of these draft picks evolve in the next few years. They ended up with a couple of guys out of that care package from North Melbourne. So I think they may not be quite as talented this year as they were last year, but they've parlayed their success into a longer window of contention, I think. And the question is just, when do you kind of shove all your chips in the middle? You're mentioning this younger group, and you didn't mention Nathan O'Driscoll. He was already there. I mean, Amos was there as well. Unfortunately, he had a kidney injury that sidelined him for much of last year. Managed to come back in time for finals and definitely had an impact in that comeback against the Bulldogs. But you look at who's left. Yeah, we listed six key departures for Fremantle. Only two other teams did we even list five. So they've got some bigger shoes to fill than a lot of teams. But fortunately, this was a team that had far more than 22 or 23 capable guys last year. Six key outs listed. One being David Mundy, who retired as Fremantle's all-time leader in games played and so many other categories. I can only imagine how weird it is for longtime Frio fans to watch them and just not see him out there with everything he's brought to the club. But... They also traded away Blake Akers to Carlton, a trade that I think Carlton easily won. They only had to give up, I believe, a third-round pick. Yeah, even though he's a little bit older, you look at the production he gives you. I mean, I'm fleeced. I wish we had, like, with-without splits for Blake Akers on and off the oval. That care package from North came their way because Griffin Logue and Darcy Tucker went to Arden Street. As I mentioned last episode when we talked about North, Griffin Lowe was a guy that I really grew to appreciate over the course of the season. At first, if you would ask me, like, who's the weakest guy in their regular lineup, he would have been one of the guys I picked. And as the year went on, it was like, okay, this guy's actually a really instrumental piece because he fills in a lot of gaps. Yeah, he can play anywhere. And having a guy like that that you can slide around is valuable in a a lot of ways. So I think giving him up is pretty significant, especially when I thought they could have really tried to make a serious flag run this year. And look, I'm not ruling out that it could happen, but I think they'd be like the fifth or sixth most likely team to win it instead of, you know, one of the three or four most likely. And no, just Griffin Logue isn't why. The aforementioned Acres trade is big, as well as trading Rory Lobb to the Bulldogs. He yeah. wanted out. Big loss in a lot of ways with the ruck support he provided, as well as being a more consistent mark and goal kick over the last couple seasons, getting rid of that weird stuff in his form and just really coming into his own at Frio. Unfortunately, they don't have that anymore, and they don't have their other ruck support from last year in the form of Lloyd Meek, who is now a hawk. But um, 
They kind of made a splash in the Ruck and Ford department before that, though. Yeah, this one was speculated for a long time. It happened. They got Luke Jackson. That's a big one. He could be in the Ruck. He could be a tall midfielder, even. Seen him in some training at midfield and half forward. They can throw him really anywhere from the center line forward, and he can do good things for them because he's always been a solid full field mark and is a better finisher than Sean Darcy is as well, I'd say. Also, with that meek trade, they did bring in Jager O'Meara, who I've really come to like from Hawthorne in the past couple years. So just another piece that'll help them maybe move on from having Mundy and Fife being so central to their midfield. Now, the one thing I'd really like to see out of them this year is some consistency out of Michael Frederick. We saw what he looked like at his best, but we also saw some games where it was like, was he even in the lineup? So I'd like to see some games out of him that aren't amazing, but are just good. And I would think having both him and Sam Switkowski healthy would contribute to that some, but I don't think that's the only thing. I think it's just there are games when either it's because he finds the matchup to exploit or they put him in the right spot or something just clicks, whatever it is, when he's on his game, it's really fun to watch. And I'd like to see more of that because it was so hit or miss last year. I want to see more out of Frederick. I want to see more out of Bailey Banfield as well. He's someone who is going to still have trouble getting into the 18 and into the 23. He was the sub a whole lot last year, but he showed better when he was in there the whole game. I noted at one point last year in August, he had scored 12 goals in the last six games in which he was named in the main 22 rather than riding the bench as an emergency and getting his shot maybe in the third quarter. It's an interesting case there where some players are able to provide that first right away off the bench and some do better when they've got, you know, a quarter under their belt already. So if Banfield is able to find that spark right away, I think it'll beg for his inclusion more often. Four teams to go. Is it going to be that other finalist next? No, it's not. At first, I almost thought, wait, there are three finalists in there. Well, if we stopped the season four weeks before the end of the home and away, it would have been three finalists. Then Carlton Carlton liked the Chargers Charger. How about if we stopped the season four minutes before the end? That too. Now, what I like about where Carlton is right now is that if you had looked at last year and just kind of scrambled the order of the games around, you would have been able to say, yeah, it sucks that they barely missed finals, but they took big strides forward. They've got some solid young pieces. They brought in Blake Akers to help things out even further on the wing, and that was one of their biggest weaknesses last year. So good on them for doing that and winning that trade that we had just talked about. Only a couple of departures of note. They added Oliver Hollins with the 11th pick. And now this year, it becomes, all right, the foundation was sort of set last year. Let's see how those pieces solidify, and let's see if now that the novelty's worn off and now that people know how to face them and kind of what their strengths and weaknesses are, how they can adapt, because they're not going to be able to sneak up on people like they did for the first half of last season. And that ties right into both our points, really. I'd like to see them win some slower games where the other team is the one that dictates the pace, because we saw Carlton's best when they would be able to amp the pace up a bit, or a lot. And that's just how it looked like Carlton's best players wanted to play. Michael Voss just let them rip and do their thing, whereas 
I'm starting to realize now David Teague didn't do that and tried to fit the Blues best into a structure that he had in mind rather than what worked best for them. I think the, you know, the best way to do it, there's like a middle ground there between playing to what the coach has in mind for structure and just playing to the player's abilities. And it's probably closer to playing to the players than it is playing to the coach. But I think there's got to be some balance there. I'm not sure how you'd quantify that mixture, but it looked like Carlton was basically just playing entirely into this is what our roster is currently best set for rather than, you know, we want to establish continuity with this scheme. We want to do things this way. And then we'll make some adjustments for the personnel we have. So that's something that they need to do this year. I need to be convinced that Voss can make the in-game adjustments for which we praise guys like Justin Longmire and John Longmire. Can he do it once that new coach smell wears off? I mean, the team was able to make do when players got injured last year. Sam Walsh was injured for that Collingwood game because of a disc issue. He finally had surgery on it not all that long ago and is going to miss the start of a season for it. Weird that they waited so long hoping that he wouldn't require it, but... In Walsh's absence, that was when Adam Chera stepped up and played that ball-handling role that I expected him to play more of all along. He had more of that chance in the middle as opposed to kind of be shuttled between the middle and a half back, kind of minimizing some of the abilities that we'd seen from him at Fremantle. The other thing I'd like to see is just smarter ball use in general. I mean, the, uh, the most obvious occasion of that was the turnover with a chance to win the game against Collingwood. Talking about Corey Durden, I believe, making that kick when Jeremy Howe intercepted and led the Pies back the other way. That's another time where coaching can help younger players through that. You also, in that fourth quarter, had Charlie Curnow ignoring an open teammate. Curnow had a few mistakes in that quarter. I still don't remember those as much because it wasn't like, the defining play, and he also had such a great season that it's easier to forget a negative like that. Colin Metal says something for itself, and both he and Harry McKay have signed considerable extensions now, the last two Coleman medalists, so that shouldn't be in doubt. But yeah, this year they need to show more of the refined tactics. They need to show more of the, you know, a lot of what they did last year was just kind of them putting it out on the table and saying, hey, here's what we got. And I'd like to see if they can do more of the tactical stuff this year, if they can counter adjustments more, if they can figure out how to handle an opponent who exploited one of their weaknesses, or if they give up three straight goals to the same guy. How do they work to stop him? All that sort of stuff. Reasonable expectations for a team in their second year under a new coach. They're just under the microscope so much because of the way last season ended with the four losses that took them out of finals altogether. The last two of them in particular giving up that goal to Kazi right at the end of round 22, and then the craziness at the end of the Collingwood game next round. I just want to mention after round 23 how great the episode of Bounce was. Basically just shitting on Carlton for an hour straight. It was really well done and really funny. But yeah, the more refined play would also involve, you know, being able to tighten things up in those late game scenarios. It's almost like a I'm thinking sort of like two-minute drill type stuff for American football. Just like, how can you close out games? How can you close out quarters? Honestly, I mean, it was the second quarter that ended up being so good for Carlton much of the year, and then midway through the third is when they started having troubles a lot of the time. 
Unfortunately, I do have to add one late arriving piece of news, and that is that Zach Williams has torn his ACL and will miss the entire season. He had a high-grade calf strain that caused him to miss rounds 10 through 22 last year. So clearly the Blues know what life is like without him on the oval, but at the same time, just so disheartening that he's having his season derailed once again, and that this time it's a complete loss. Hopefully he'll be able to bounce back in 2024. Spinning the wheel once again. Just three teams to go now for 15 out of 18. All right, Giants time. Yes, I saw some news across my timeline at the start of this episode that I am really excited to bring in here. Decent amount of new stuff at GWS. A new coach in Adam Kingsley, who was previously a Richmond assistant. He's the only brand new first time AFL head coach this year. The other three hires this past offseason were retreads. Clarkson, Lyon, and Brad Scott. Through the mega trade, the Giants also moved up to pick one, and they got big Vic country forward Aaron Cadman, who will figure into selection right away. Just another one of the many good pieces they could have at forward. We talked about this a lot last year, where they had a forward group so crowded that they needed to move some guys back. It worked out really well with Harry Himmelberg, who now has short hair, which is really weird in itself. It sounds like he's been getting more forward than back time in training thus far, too. So what do they have up their sleeves defensively? If he's got shorter hair, then should he just be Hair Himmelberg instead of Harry? That's terribly that I expected better. The other piece they've brought in, Toby Bedford in a trade from Melbourne. He was always on the cusp of getting in there, really the first guy into their main group once they had an injury. He was the injury sub. Yeah. And he showed decently in that, but I think mainly they were seeing Bedford as someone who could fill the hole left by Bobby Hill departing for Collingwood. Dang it, Bobby. Going from being a marginal guy on a good team to a bad team means Bedford should have a chance to be an everyday guy, which is good. Now, Bobby Hill is not the only big departure. Tanner Roon's going to Jalog. Hey, maybe Aaron Cadman will end up there in a few years if all goes well. Jacob Hoffer's heading to Richmond, as is Tim Taranto. Well, what those departures should mean is continued opportunity for the younger side of their list, and there's plenty of it. Looking at players who got their first significant time last year, James Peedling had a few really strong games in a row. You had a bunch of other players start to make their mark felt. Finn Callahan was the Giants' top pick from the 2021 draft. He had a couple good showings near the end. Also, Tom Green is a 2001 kid. For some reason, didn't click with me that he's still that young. Maybe because he built up his fan club so quickly. Normally, you have to be around for a long time to have a passionate fan club like he has. Yeah, could they please actually have better numbers at the showground? It's a simple ask, and yet it's one that's going to go unanswered. Canberra deserves Team 20. Also, Lek Alir is a really cool story. Alir's going to have a hard time fitting in right away in the back. The fullback line looks like it'll stay as it was last year, spearheaded by All-Australian Sam Taylor. Glad that a couple of defenders who really shown one club best in Ferris last year, and he was one of those guys. So Taylor, along with Nick Haynes and Lockie Keefe back there. And then Connor Iden was shifted back last year as well. Wasn't a huge fan of him at times, but I think they're really committing to him staying in that in the back third as opposed to Himmelberg. Hopefully, though, Leck gets his shot because I just love seeing the success 
of this South Sudanese wave of players. And hopefully Leck is part of that longer term. Second thing, let Callum Brown play and let him play as a forward. I know you've got not a lot defensively, but he's a very skilled forward. He can score off the ground. He can showcase the soccer skills. He's a great kick. And he's not built to be a defender. So don't put him back there. That was a terrible experiment. I never understood why Spike did that. Hopefully Kingsley realizes how dumb it was. Is that really the price you have to pay for putting Harry Himmelberg up forward? If so, keep him the fuck back. Speaking of young guys, they have a rookie named Jason Gilby, who they pre-listed after drafting him from the Bendigo Pioneers. And every Monday during their preseason, a member of the Giants midfield group has been asked to bring in three items that are important to them as a means of finding out something new about each other. This is from a story on AFL.com by Riley Beveridge. So basically, they're doing show and tell. And that's how we learned that three years ago, Jason Gilby replaced all of his water intake with milk. You ever seen, like, a tortoise that had too much calcium and how its shell gets all fucked up? It's called pyramiding. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's what that's from. Interesting. Yeah, it's the only thing I could think of when I saw this. Other than that, I was just kind of laughing for a while. I mean, so let's just hope Jason Gilby isn't a tortoise. Or just if we start seeing weird bone growths or something, we know why. I guess so. I mostly just want to see this team grow. This is clearly a multi-year project. They could easily be bottom three again this year. But I want an identity to start emerging beyond the well-known names. I want Adam Kingsley to get the Giants playing his way from the beginning, yet being willing to give the younger guys a shot. I want to have people to regularly talk about other than Sam Taylor and Stephen Canelio and his eyebrow or either Toby Green with an E at the end or Tom Green without an E at the end every week. I just want to see more out of the full list. I hope Kingsley gives them the opportunity for that right away. Also, hopefully they don't have another member of their staff arrested for buying cocaine and sacked after three months because that's what their development manager, well, former development manager, Robbie Chancellor did. At least he didn't have like a super weird video like the former Miami Dolphins, I think, offensive line coach who's now a member of the 49ers staff because his cocaine thing came with like this really weird fucking video. He's like talking to the camera and I don't know. Speaking of sort of related things. In 2017, there was a Cincinnati Reds prospect suspended because of a video of him doing cocaine. I don't recommend doing cocaine, but if you're going to do anything you shouldn't be doing, don't do it on a fucking video. Like, it's easy to be an idiot without a camera. I mean, Robbie Chandler didn't have a camera in this case. He was caught by. He didn't have the camera on him. But yeah, um, just... How many different cocaine scandals are we going to have in the AFL? All right, two teams really on opposite ends of things left. Which one's it going to be? Is it the one that suffered humiliating defeats all of last season? Or the team that suffered their most humiliating defeats going out in straight sets? It's the one that suffered all last season. The club of which I'm now a member. West Coast Eagles. Clap, 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 clap. Yeah, um, AFL clubs in general need to step up with their chant game. I was always hoping, going into Australian rules football, that we'd have more, like, 
really well thought out, longer winded English soccer like chants, especially about how well endowed players are, such as Romelu Lukaku. Just in general, we don't have any of that. It's kind of sad. It's just club name, club name. If there's one thing that ought to be true for the Eagles, it's that they don't have nearly as many preseason injuries this year as they did last year. I mean, you already had to scroll down the page to see the complete injury list for West Coast before round one hit last year. Of course, that was also factoring in COVID and they had the top ups round two, including the guy that was literally getting dressed in the elevator while the game was beginning. I think that summed up their season really well. Do you remember his name? Nope. Declan Mountford. He crossed paths with Dermot Brereton in the elevator on the way to the rooms. One of those moments that gets completely forgotten about from last season, partially because it was so early and also because it was the West Coast Eagles. You know, the one thing that unfortunately didn't carry over from that game was that they fought really valiantly and were in it most of the way. Yes, again, that game was against North, but like there was a level of fight in the team that day. That was really nice to see, and I was hoping that that would inspire their regular guys once they got back to do the same, and it really didn't until after the bye when they put on a pretty inspired performance, keeping Geelong close most of the way at home, and then actually beating Essendon, and that was all in the win department for them. Yeah, apparently eight goals from Josh Kennedy in a finale isn't good enough to give you the win. He will be sorely missed. Look, his career was on its way out, and I loved how that final game went because there was really nothing to play for. It was just like, let's just turn this game into a giant love fest for one guy, and it's one of those things that, like, if the season had gone differently, that couldn't have happened. But because the season was such a mess, they were able to do something cool like that. The other big out, what you're looking at, the last few years the Eagles is that Junior Rioli was traded away to Port. He had requested that the club seemed pretty butthurt about it at first, which was an interesting little saga there for a couple weeks. My one regret is that when they sent out their statement, they didn't put it in Comic Sans like Dan Gilbert did when LeBron left the first time. I think I mentioned that in season one. I would hope you did. But when you're looking at ins for West Coast, you've obviously got the players that they picked up in the draft. You've got Ruben Gidby and Elijah Hewitt from the first round, picks that were part of that mega trade, and they correctly used them on local Western Australian talents. When, you've, when you're a team that's on the lower end of things and you're a non-Victorian team in particular, if you're wanting to retain talent, you've got to really look in-state, and I'm glad that they're doing that. It was also nice to see them bring in a veteran who's still got some speed and had some importance last year for his team. Jaden Hunt was never the first guy you'd think of, but he had some really important spots in some of Melbourne's later wins. I don't think they would have won their round 22 game against Carlton without the accelerating work that he did. But in addition to Hunt and Ginby and Hewitt, you've also got the players that missed so much time last year, just didn't play at all, that are seemingly close to or at full health at this point. Oscar Allen and Cable Chesser didn't play at all last year. Allen's going to need to have an important role right away, filling the hole that Kennedy left. Allen's also going to be weighed down by that R. I'm sorry, what? At the end of his name. Oh, as opposed to Oscar Riccardi. I, I, I get it. That was not good. It was great. 
But Alan and, Alan and Chesser didn't play at all last year. Luke Shuey was playing a lot of the year injured and still was one of the possession leaders for the Eagles. Elliot Yo was born with glass bones and paper skin and did better once he was put back at halfback where he belonged all along. I don't know what we're in for this year with the Eagles, but something more promising than last year in terms of at least seeing what this full list has. I mean, it would be physically hard for it to be worse. Exactly. And I'm still not a huge fan of how they've kept around some of their premiership core for as long as they have. But at this point, I've got to be content with what their list is right now, because it's going to take a few years for them to become competitive again, one way or another, whether or not they move on from the premiership course sooner or later. And some of those players definitely are still important. Jeremy McGovern and Shannon Hearn are still essential in the back, and this very well could be Hearn's last season. Surprised that he's still playing on, but you've got to admire that sort of commitment. Nick Nanui, when healthy, is still a hit-out king. And just super fun to watch. Absolutely. Probably the first Eagles player that I really noticed and thought, wow, this guy's different. I like this guy. And then Liam Ryan was probably the second. A down 2022 for him. But I think he really still does have the best of his career ahead of him. Realistic question for you, the Eagles member. If everything goes right, well, actually... Everything going right might not be in the form of winning games when you're looking at long-term prospects, but say everything in terms of winning games and health and things like that, everyone plays to their best. The coaching's good. Health is good. Coaching is good. Yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. I thought they should have moved on from Simpson already. What is the highest you could see them finish? 12th. I expect a ceiling at around seven, eight wins, eight is definitely a stretch, even with an extra game in there. What do you think of that? I guess so, which is just, that's not a fun place to be because you would think that, you know, for them to finish 12th would probably mean contributions from some older guys that aren't going to factor into the future, and that would just lead to the team kind of most likely buying into, you know, keep the old guard around, another round for the boys club. I do think... Again, it would be hard for it to be worse this year. But my hope for them is just that they give me a reason to watch them in the second half, both of games and of the season, because they have multiple games or, you know, like the home game against the Swans, the home game against the Bulldogs, the game at Port Adelaide, where it's like the second half of this is not worth watching. Like the game they played against Geelong at home, they were competitive. They were not good, but they were competitive. Give me, you know, six wins or so, and really the confirmation that they're continuing to focus on the local talent that those guys are beginning to grow, that their new identity is going to be built around them, and I'll be satisfied with this year. Along with the draft picks and Allen, if there's one Western player that I hope they're really able to build around, it will be Brady Hoff, who has transitioned to the wing pretty nicely from the middle of last year, and hopefully he can really start to play an important role there Maybe play him opposite Shuey in that regard. All right, one to go. The end is nigh. Are we going to include the wheel spinning sound effect? Now nah, let's just go straight to Melbourne. I'm going to say it right off the bat. In recent years, there's a trend that a team who was in the top four the previous year isn't in finals at all. The next, out of the top four from home and away 2022, 
I've got to think Melbourne is the least likely to return to finals. I still like their chances too, but... Yeah, I do, but if you if you had to pick one Melbourne, yes or no? Yeah, I, I think that's fair, which is funny because if you looked at like how quickly our attitude towards them changed, you know, all of a sudden they went from looking like this team is unbeatable, they're so fundamentally sound, to when you break them down, most of the individual pieces just aren't great. And if you can break down their system and throw their defense out of its rhythm, draw them over to one side, and they're very, very vulgar. From really the midpoint of last season, teams figured out, hey, wait, really all they're doing at this point is bombing it into the forward 50 and hoping somebody stands up. Now they'll have Brody Grundy being able to stand up there as well alongside Max Gone, and Jacob Van Ruyen will likely be around one debut. But that strategy just doesn't work. They need to be able to string things together more. So Lockie Hubbard will definitely have an important role there in the midfield. Definitely still a force to be reckoned with in that middle third with Petraka and Oliver running alongside him. But we just have questions in both 50s still. We saw how quickly they fell apart when Stephen May was out. And then they just didn't have the solution really in the forward 50 on the taller end when Max Gone wasn't accurate. Along with Grundy and Hunter, Josh Shackey is also an in for Melbourne this year coming in in a separate trade with the Bulldogs from the one where they got Hunter. I like him. He had a couple really bad plays early in the season, but got his shit together nicely, and I think he kind of had the short end of the stick of the Bulldogs, so happy for him to get a fresh start. When it comes to the outs, the big one I'm looking at really is bringing Grundy in exchange for Luke Jackson, and I'm just sitting here thinking... That's a substantial downgrade, is it not? I mean, I know what Grundy's able to do at his best, but he's not at that point anymore. Even if he's able to split time with Gone and they're able to rotate between Ruck and Key forward. Yeah, um, no disrespect to Brody Grundy. He's a very good player, but just doesn't have the versatility that Jackson has for one or the youth. You're going to need Gone to play in that 20-21 finals form for that tandem to kind of match what Jackson could offer. And that's really where Van Ruyen is going to be really important in the forward department as well. Somebody who I had hoped could debut at the end of last season, but should definitely be factoring in from March this year. They've got the smaller playmaker in Kazi Pickett. They've got the steady goal kick in Bailey Fritch. They've got to get their talls to put them over the top. Another player that I really didn't think about for a lot of last season for the D's until he was kind of swung forward at times and had a more important role later on this season was Harrison Petty, who had been there as an interceptor all along, but hadn't really gotten the same attention that Stephen May or Jake Lever had gotten for obvious reasons. When they were making that late push to try to get back into things against Brisbane, it was Petty who managed to sneak in there, get a couple good chances. So what's his role going to be? Is he going to be moved between the 50s this year? Or are they going to try to keep him into a steadier role? I think it's going to be tough for him to find that for time if they've got their best 23 out there. But I want that unexpected forward spark for them to still appear at times because, again, they're a team with all sorts of notable individuals. I want someone to surprise me. I'd like to see them not just rotate between mediocre pieces. Because one of the things that was annoying about them last year with their list management was that Weta Brown position where it was just if one of 
Ben Brown or Sam Wiedemann had a shitty game, then the other came in and they just kind of kept rotating and maybe once in a while one of them would give you two or three goals, but like surely there's got to be someone more interesting that's been getting time in the VFL. That's where Ben Ryan comes in. I don't see Ben Brown in their best 23 to start the season. And obviously, Wiedemann's one of their outs being traded to Essendon. Wiedemann, along with the aforementioned Luke Jackson, and then Toby Bedford was traded to the Giants, and Jaden Hunt walked to the Eagles. I know you've liked Wiedemann. He's just been hampered by lack of time and more notable names in that forward group. I also like Ben Brown. It's just, I mean, he's, what, the second player we recognized? It's just, you can't keep rotating between unremarkable pieces and expecting one of them to be more than unremarkable. I want an early side that Simon Goodwin is doing something different in the forward half movement in general. It is willing to give good VFL pieces a shot as well. It's a pretty simple ask, and I think Goodwin's capable of it. Let's see it, because this is a team that should still be in the top four mix. But I could also see them falling to 10th. That's my wish list for them. And those are our wish lists for all 18 teams, if you count last episode as well. It's been a nice way for us to recap the offseason, get both you listeners and ourselves up to speed. And as we get closer and closer to the start of the home and away season, we'll see some lineups begin to take more shape and hopefully just have more interesting stories than, ooh, this guy put up a good time at the two kilometer. Did you see that photo of this guy's biceps? Yeah, that's kind of what every AFL account is like right now. When you do the thing with the long ropes, you can kind of expect your biceps to show. It's the Australian version of guys showing up to spring training in the best shape of their lives, which is just a few weeks away. Yeah, so we'll definitely have some interstate episodes when that happens with you being in Arizona right around the time that the home and away will get going. I just want it to be March already. Simple as that. You know what else is simple? Finding us. You can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. You can also find us on YouTube. You can find me on Twitter at Castle Media, me at BenjaminHK01, and Brian Harambe on Instagram at Cap Name Brian. All right. That's it. <laughs>